What a wonderful expression of optimism in the face of such a dire situation. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and in this episode I discuss the second half of February's book One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, translated by Ralph Parker. So each month I take a book I've never read, split it in two and discuss each half on the second and last Fridays of the month. I do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far that I've seen in the novel. Be aware there may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas at future episodes so please leave a comment or start a conversation below or if you're listening to the episode send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So this episode is all about the second half of One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich from page 72, where it says the shop was quiet. Now, Tyrion, he's explaining how he was thrown out of the army because it was discovered that his parents were kulaks. Now, kulaks were rich peasants. From Wikipedia, it says the following, quote, During the first five-year plan, Joseph Stalin's all-out campaign to take land ownership and organisation away from the peasantry, peasants with a couple of cows or five or six acres, more than their neighbours, were labelled kulaks. In 1929, Soviet officials officially classified kulaks according to subjective criteria, such as the use of hired labour. Under de-kulakisation, government officials seized farms and killed most registers, deported others to labour camps and drove many others to migrate to the cities following the loss of their property to the collectives. Now, the army chiefs viewed Tyrion as, quote, a deceiver of Soviet power for hiding from his family background. He explains how he hid in a train compartment by a group of students all the way to Novobazirsk. Quote, I was able to show my gratitude to one of them later, one of the students, who was swept up by the Kirov wave in 35. She was just about done in, working in a hard labour team, and I got her fixed up in the tailoring shop. He goes on. I came up to our house at night through the back garden. I left the same night. I took my little brother with me, went off with him to warmer parts, to Frunze. I had nothing to give him to eat, and nothing for myself either. In Frunze, some road workers were boiling asphalt in a pot, with all kinds of riffraff and waves sitting around. I sat down among them and said, Hey, you gents, take on my little brother as a learner. Teach him how to live. They took him on. I'm only sorry I didn't join the crooks myself. And what a tragic backstory for poor Tyrin. And it's described in detail how the wall is made in the camp and the constant worry of the mortar setting too soon in these icy conditions. Now, I've noticed that Shukov has not complained once about his illness. He truly is a remarkable and very stoic character. Dare, who's one of the prisoners, D-E-R, not a particularly nice prisoner, comments on how Tyrin will get another term if they find out they've covered the windows with roofing felt. Tyrin shuts him up with, quote, Your time for giving terms has passed, you rat. If you say a word, you bloodsucker, this is your last day on earth. Remember that. Shukov, because he doesn't want to waste any mortar, carries on working in order to help the team. Quote, He worried about anything he could make use of, about every scrap of work he could do. Nothing must be wasted without good reason. He really is a super guy. Tyrion says, quote, Why do these rats make the workday so short? We're just getting into our stride when they call it off. They're such team players. 
Now Shukov runs back to the roll call after finishing off the mortar and stares at the moon. There's a bit of an empirical philosophy ensuing when Shukov makes the case that there is a new moon every four weeks. Shukov says, quote, In our village, folks say God crumbles up the old moon into crumble the moon and stars. Why? And the captain laughs and interrupts with, What savages? I've never heard that. Then you believe in God, Shukov? And Shukov says, Why not? Hear him thunder and try not to believe in him. But the captain says, why does God do it? And Shukov says, do what? Crumble the moon and stars. Why? And Shukov says, well, can't you understand? The stars fall down now and then. The gaps have to be filled. They're kept waiting by a missing person, a Moldavian spy. Now it transpires that he'd fallen asleep and the other prisoners had to wait over half an hour for him in these freezing conditions. He's not popular, to put it mildly. Shukov's rich prisoner colleague, Cesar, is waiting for a parcel and Shukov thinks that he may be able to get some food out of Cesar if he offers to wait in the parcel queue for him. And Cesar agrees to this. Before this, Shukov prepares to be searched. He suddenly remembers that he stole a piece of hacksaw blade. Do you remember that from the first part? It was just before the end of the first half and it was one of those unanswered questions. Will it be discovered? Shukov thinks that he can just drop it. It will be discovered, but he'll get away with not getting the blame. If it is discovered on his person, he could get 10 days in the cells. Ultimately, he decides to confidently hide it and step forward since, quote, what a pity to throw it away. Why, he could make a little knife out of it, very handy for cobbling or tailoring. Good luck, Shukov. I am rooting for you. I'm really picking up hoarding tendencies in Shukov, not wanting to waste the mortar, not wanting to waste anything. But I guess that is what prison life does to you. It's a really tense scene. Listen to this, quote, because they were three and the guards facing them were five, Shukov could try a ruse. He could choose which of the two guards on the right to present himself to. He decided against a young ruddy faced one and plumped for an older man with a grey moustache. The older one, of course, was experienced and would find the blade easily if he wanted to. But because of his age, he must have got fed up with the work. It must stink in his nostrils by now like burning sulphur. This is more like a game of chess. He continues, meanwhile, Shukov had removed both mittens, the empty one and the one with the hacksaw and held them in one hand, the empty one in front, together with the untied rope belt. He fully unbuttoned his jacket, lifted high the edges of his coat and jacket. Never had he been so servile at the search, but now he wanted to show he was innocent. Come on, frisk me. And at the word of command, stepped forward. The guard slapped Shukov's sides and back and the outside of his knee pocket. Nothing there. He needed the edges of coat and jacket. Nothing there either. He was about to pass him through when, for safety's sake, he crushed the mitten that Shukov held out to him. The empty one. The guard crushed it in his hand and Shukov felt as though pincers of iron were crushing everything inside him. One such squeeze on the other mitten and he'd be sunk. The cells on 300 grams of bread a day and hot skilly one day in three. He imagined how weak he'd grow, how difficult he'd find it to get back to his present condition, neither fed nor starving. Please, please don't find it. The skillet, by the way, is this very, very thin broth. Continuing on. And an urgent prayer rose in his heart. O oh Lord, save me. Don't let them send me to the cells. And while all this raced through his mind, the guard, after finishing with the right hand mitten, stretched a hand out to deal with the other. 
He would have squeezed them at the same moment if Shukov had held them in separate hands. Just then the guard heard his chief, who was in a hurry to get on, shout to the escort, Come along, bring up the machine works column. And instead of examining the other mitten, the old guard waved Shukov on. He was through. Thank God for that, that awful feeling of being found out. I get that every time I go through security at an airport. Is there some liquid I've accidentally packed that I'll be found out for and subjected to questioning? Is that feeling times a thousand? Now, the 50-50 luck that got him through this experience is similar to the 50-50 luck that got him into a prison camp in the first place. The whole place seems to operate on luck or unluckiness. Now, they arrive back at the camp. The Moldavian spy, he was a spy, is charged with escaping and taken to cells. Shukov goes to collect a parcel for Cesar in exchange for getting Cesar's supper. He reflects on parcels, quote, when he was in Itzuma, that's a previous prison, Shukov had got parcels a couple of times, but he wrote to his wife that it was a waste. Don't send them. Don't take the food out of the kids' mouths. Although when he had been at liberty, Shukov had found it easier to feed his whole family than it ever was to feed himself. Now he knew what those parcels cost. He knew too that his family wouldn't be able to keep it up for 10 years. Better do without them. But though he decided that way, every time someone in the team or close by in the barracks received a parcel, which was almost every day, his heart ached because there wasn't one for him. And though he'd strictly forbidden his wife to send him anything even for Easter, and though he never thought of reading the list except for a rich teammate, every now and then he felt himself longing for someone to run up and say, Shukov, why don't you go for your parcel? There's one for you. But no one ran up. Poor Shukov. It is heart-wrenching to read that. Now he gets back to his bed and feels for the little piece of bread that he stored in his mattress in the morning. It's still there, thank God. They go to the mess hall to get food. Fights break out and there's a real scrum to get their hands on these pitiful dregs. Shukov strategizes as to which bars will have the most nutrients in them. Quote, The cook took an enormous ladle and stirred, stirred, stirred. The cauldron had just been refilled, almost up to the brim, and steam poured from it. Replacing the huge ladle with a smaller one, he began serving the skilly. He didn't go deep. Some of the bowls had been filled while the stuff from the bottom of the cauldron hadn't settled yet. After the stirring and some were duds, nothing but liquid. Shukov made a mental note of which was which. He manages to get one of the thicker bowls of skillet in front of him and starts eating. Quote, and now Shukov complained about nothing. Neither the length of his strength nor about the length of the day. This is all he thought about now. We'll survive. We'll stick it out. God grant till it's over. I think he might be one of my favourite characters in fiction. Almost amongst this mayhem of hardship and cold and hard physical labour, he retains his dignity and strength of character. What an incredible person. Now, just as I'm thinking how stoic and incredible Shukov's strength of character is, we have this beautiful character study of another prisoner that Shukov watches in the mess hall. He's an older man. Listen to this, quote. He held himself straight. The other Zex, that's prisoners, sat all hunched up and looked as if he'd put something extra on the bench to sit on. There was nothing left to crop on his head. His hair had dropped out long since, the result of high living, no doubt. His eyes didn't dart after everything going on in the mess hall. He kept them fixed in an unseeing gaze at some spot over Shukov's head. His worn wooden spoon dipped rhythmically into the thin skilly. But instead of lowering his head to the bowl like everybody else, he raised the spoon high to his lips. 
He had lost all his teeth and chewed his bread with iron gums. All life had drained out of his face, but had been left, not sickly or feeble, but hard and dark like carved stone. And by his hands, big and cracked and blackened, he could see that he had little opportunity of doing cushy jobs. But he wasn't going to give in. Oh no, he wasn't going to put his 300 grams on the dirty, bespattered table. He put it on a well-washed bit of rag. Shukov buys some tobacco off Kilgas, another camp member, for two rubles that he's hidden in his shirt lining. And then back at camp, Shukov notices the contents of Tezos' parcel. It's a feast. Quote, Cesar had got sausage, condensed milk, plump smoked fish, pork fat, rusks, biscuits, two kilograms of lump sugar and what looked like butter, as well as cigarettes and pipe tobacco. And that wasn't all. Now, as payment for keeping his place in the parcel queue, Cesar lets Shukov have his 200 gram bread ration. Quote, his bowl of the skillet, now this 200 grams of bread, that was a full supper. Shukov recounts the diplomacy that goes on between prisoners, and I'll speak more about that later. He notices that Fetikov, who's sometimes known as the Jackal, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, he's been beaten up, probably for scrounging empty leftovers at dinner. Quote, Fetikov walked through the hut. He was sobbing, all hunched up, his mouth smeared with blood. So he'd been beaten up again. The bowls. With no attempt to hide his tears and looking at no one, he passed the whole team, crawled into his bunk and buried his face in his mattress. When you thought about it, you couldn't help feeling sorry for him. He wouldn't live to see the end of his stretch. His attitude was all wrong. Now they're all relaxing in the hut when Snubnose, a prison guard, enters looking for someone. It's Burinovsky, who is dragged off to solitary confinement for 10 days. Remember for speaking out against Volkovoy? way back on page 33 in the first half. If you recall, the wolf, Volkovoy, puts Shukov's team colleague, Burnovsky, for 10 days in the cells for complaining about being strip-searched in the cold. I really feel sorry for poor Burnovsky. He stood up to what he thought was right, and he is a committed communist, but he didn't play the game. And his inexperience of prison life, he's a relative newcomer, I believe it's just two months, has caused him to end up in solitary confinement. The prison camp is a completely new world to the world he is used to, and he will need to come up with new techniques in order to survive. Listen to this quote. Quote, The captain looked around. Should he take his coat? Anyway, they'd strip it off him when he got there, leaving him only his jacket. Better go as he was. Go to prison, that is. The solitary confinement. He'd hoped that Volkovoy would forget, but Volkovoy never forgot anyone, had made no preparations, hadn't even hidden a pinch of tobacco in his jacket, and to carry it in his hands, that would be useless. They'd take it from him straight away when they frisked him. All the same, Cesar slipped him a couple of cigarettes as he put on his hat. Well, brothers, goodbye, said the captain, with an embarrassed nod to his teammates, and followed the guard out. A few voices shouted, Keep your pecker up. But what could you really say to him? They knew the cells, the 104th did. They'd built them, brick walls, cement floor, no windows, a stove they lit only to melt the ice on the walls and make pools on the floor. You slept on bare boards, and if you'd any teeth left to eat with after all the chattering they'd be doing, they gave you 300 grams of bread day after day and hot skilly only on the third, sixth and ninth. Ten days. Ten days hard in the cells, if you sat them out to the end, your health will be ruined for the rest of your life. TB and nothing but hospital for you till you croaked. 
As for those who got 15 days hard and sat them out, they went straight into a hole in the cold earth. Hopefully he'll survive these 10 days, but since this is a day in the life book, I'm assuming we'll never find out. It makes me feel very sad for Burnovsky. Now they're forced to do a recount as Shukov helps Cesar protect his precious package by giving him advice on when to leave and return. Shukov lies down in bed and reflects on how well the day has gone for him. It's very optimistic reflection, and there'll be more on that later. He sees Aloysia reading the Bible. Aloysia asks him why he doesn't pray, and Shukov says that appeals to a higher body either don't get through or are rejected. There'll be more on that later as well. The novel closes with Shukov listing all the good things that have happened during the day. It really reminds me of a word I heard recently. I'll get in a newspaper article in The Guardian by Phoebe Greenwood called Lessons from My Dying Therapist. In it, Phoebe's therapist, a woman called Sarah, talks of finding the good orjit in everything. And I'm going to quote that. Quote, the good orjit, a made up word derived from the phrase to augur good, means to be able to stay with the good bit of your life. To stay with the good orgit is to find the good in an experience, she says. If you don't have this capacity to take the good orgit, or, orgit then you are trapped. A-U-G-I-T. It certainly seems like Shukov is able to find the good orgit in his experience. I have to say I absolutely adored this book. I thought it was so powerful and such a, an interesting historical account of what it was like to live in the Gulag. And I also thought that Shukov's attitude was just so uplifting. It was so... He, he was always thinking about the positive things and every small gain that he created for himself during the day, he really reflected on at the end and really... It, gave him such buoyancy in this horrible situation and gave him hope. There were some really interesting ideas that came up in the second half. I think it's very interesting how they trust the team leaders and are motivated by the team leaders far more than the prison guards. Quote, a guard can't get people to budge even in working hours, but a team leader can tell his men to get on with the job even during the break and they'll do it because he's the one who feeds them and he'd never make them work for nothing. We have these very cleverly designed prison camps and they work really hard. Quote, Shukov and the other Masons felt the cold no longer. Thanks to the urgent work, the first wave of heat had come over them when you feel wet under your coat, under your jacket, under your shirt and your vest. But they didn't stop for a moment. They hurried on with the laying and after about an hour, they had their second flush of heat. The one that dries up the sweat. Their feet didn't feel cold. That was the main thing. Nothing else mattered. Even the breeze, light but piercing, couldn't distract them from their work. The cold is a real motivator for them. It's freezing bitter conditions. They're also really motivated, not only by the cold, but by Tyrion, their team leader and fellow prisoner, who they can relate to. Remember his heartbreaking capture? And he'll be able to look after them with ration favours when putting in good work reports. Another interesting idea to come up from the second half prisoners breaking equipment in order to get some kind of rest. Quote, for as long as Shukov had worked with machinery, the machines had either broken down or been smashed by the Zeks, that's the prisoners. He'd seen them wreck a log conveyor by shoving a beam under the chain and leaning hard on it to give themselves a breather. They were stacking log by log with never a moment to stretch their backs. Obviously, we get a huge amount of hoarding happening in this second half as well as in the first half. 
And Shukov confidently hides and steps forward since, quote, what a pity to throw it away. Why he could make a little knife out of it very handy for cobbling or tailoring. Another idea that comes out throughout this whole novel is the diplomacy involved in being a prisoner. There's so much give and take and repayment of favours in, in the prison camp. It's a complex ballet of diplomacy and charisma. Some prisoners seem to have the skills and experience and some just don't, like poor Fetyakov, the jackal, who, if you remember, got beaten up for taking empty bowls at dinner to lap up leftovers. And remember, Shukov and Cesar had the interaction involving the parcel. And Shukov compares it to a host of other minor services that are paid for. Quote, and there must be something for services like Shukov's. And he goes on to describe these other services. Something to the bath attendant for issuing with decent underwear. Not much, but something. And for the barber who shaves you with paper for wiping the razor on, he usually does it on your knee. Not much to him either, but still three or four fags. And at the culture education department for your letters to be kept separate and not lost. And if you want to fiddle a day or two and lie in bed, instead of going to work, you have to slip the doctor a trifle. But what about the neighbour you share a locker with? The captain in Cesar's case. He must have his whack. He sees, after all, every blessed bit you take. Who could be so brazen as to not give him his share? So leave envy to those who always think the radish in the other fellow's hand is bigger than theirs. Shukov knows life and never opens his belly to what doesn't belong to him. Poor Fetikov suffers from this envy. Hopefully he'll one day learn diplomacy in the prison camp and will, to quote Shukov, live to see the end of his stretch. Cesar asked Shukov to lend him his, quote, 10 days, his knife. And Shukov remarks to himself, Quote, now Cesar was again in his debt. It's very useful to be indebted to such a rich person as Cesar who gets these extraordinarily bountiful parcels. I think it would take a lot of brains and experience to build up the vast wealth of knowledge to operate in this cutthroat world of give and take. There's so many subtle hints and clues and my heart really goes out to Fetyakov, the jackal. Throughout this book, we have the idea of freedom Shukov realises that he will never be free because home is freedom to him and he will be exiled after his release. Aloysius says to Shukov, quote, Why do you want freedom? In freedom your last grain of faith will be choked with weeds. You should rejoice that you're in prison. Here you have time to think about your soul. As the Apostle Paul wrote, Why all these tears? Why are you trying to weaken my resolution? For my part, I'm ready not merely to be bound, but even to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Shukov gazed at the ceiling in silence. Now he didn't know either whether he wanted freedom or not. At first he'd longed for it. Every night he'd counted the days of his stretch, how many had passed, how many were coming, and then he'd grow bored with his counting. And then it became clear that men of his like wouldn't ever be allowed to return home, that they'd be exiled, and whether his life would be any better there than here. Who could tell? Freedom meant one thing to him, home, but they wouldn't let him go home. Elisha was speaking the truth. His voice and his eyes left no doubt that he was happy in prison. You see, Elisha, Shukov explained to him, somehow it works out all right for you. Jesus Christ wanted you to sit in prison, and so you are, sitting there for his sake. But for whose sake am I here? Because we weren't ready for war in 41? For that? But was that my fault? Is Shukov struggling for a reason as to why he is in prison? cause or is he showing Elisha that he accepts that there is no cause or reason? I think the latter. And each day 
He is finding the good in the terrible situation he finds himself. That is what keeps him going. It's what keeps him alive. Finding the good things in the smallest successes, whether that be an extra crust of bread gained or a cigarette given. Shukov is also showing that God is a personal God. Of Aloysia, Shukov remarks, quote, Jesus Christ wanted you to sit in prison. But Shukov, believing that God has different roles for different people, wonders why he was put in prison. Perhaps he answers his own question indirectly at the end of the novel. Is it that Shukov's God is his ability to see the good in these small successes, enumerated at the end of the novel? What do you think? Now, Shukov's got some interesting thoughts on prayer. Aloysia says to Shukov, quote, There you are, Ivan Denisovich, your soul is begging to pray. Why then don't you give it its freedom? Shukov stole a look at him. Aloysia's eyes glowed like two candles. Well, Aloysia, Shukov says with a sign, is this way. Prayers are like those appeals of ours. Either they don't get through or they're returned with rejected scrawled across them. Shukov really doesn't believe in appealing to anyone else's authority, only to his own. Maybe he relates any higher authority, i.e. God, to the similar authority of the prison guards. He will only get hurt if he places his trust in something outside of himself or some higher authority. His appeal will be rejected or won't get through if he places his trust in God. He can only place the trust of good things to happen if he places that trust on himself. It's a very self-focused philosophy, born of years having to look after oneself in prison. In an environment where trust in others must be very difficult to foster. Now Shukov has this unwavering optimism, as I've said previously. Listen to when he's going down to sleep in his bunk and his enumeration of things that have happened to him. Quote, but he'd had such a good day. He felt in such good spirits that somehow he wasn't in the mood for sleep yet. He must make his bed now. There wasn't much to it. Strip his mattress of the grubby blanket and lie on it. It must have been 1941 when he last slept in sheets. That was at home. It even seemed odd for women to bother about sheets, all that extra laundry. Head on pillow, stated with shavings of wood, feet in jacket sleeve, coat on top of blanket, and glory be to thee, O Lord, another day over. Thank you. I'm not spending tonight in the cells. Here it's still bearable. Small, tiny things have gone right for him all throughout the day. Not having the hacksaw blade found, getting extra food. He really appreciates these small wins. It makes life bearable for him. More than that, it was a good day. Here's the enumeration I promised. Quote, Shukov went to sleep fully content. He'd had many strokes of luck that day. They hadn't put him in the cells. They hadn't sent the team to the settlement. He'd pinched a bowl of cashier at dinner. That's some kind of porridge, I think. The team leader had fixed the rates well. He built a wall and enjoyed doing it. He'd smuggled that bit of hacksaw blade through. He'd earned something from Cesar in the evening. He'd bought that tobacco and he hadn't fallen ill. He'd got over it. A day without a dark cloud. Almost a happy day. We also have this incredible work ethic of Shukov in the face of this cold and illness. Have a listen to this quote, page 90. Shukov noticed there was little mortar left in Kilgas's hod. He didn't want to waste it, but was worried that the team leader might be reprimanded if the trials were handed in late. Listen, lads, he said, give your trials to Gopchik. Mine's not on the list. There's no need to hand it in. I'll keep going. Turin said with a laugh, 
How can we ever let you out? We just can't spare you. His humanity and spirit are exemplary. He is the living embodiment of Beethoven's Ode to Joy. Quite remarkable. Especially since I've just spent a day in bed with a slight temperature. It's pretty cold outside at the moment and the thought of doing a full day's manual labour outside gives me such fear. Anyway, a fantastic book. Some really interesting ideas there and I would love to know what ideas you may have which you'd like to share. Just a little bit about Solzhenitsyn. I'm just going to read it out from the beginning of the book. Solzhenitsyn was born at Kislovsk, in 1918. He took a correspondence course in literature as well as studying mathematics at Rostov University. But he was called up for the army. He served continuously at the front as a gunner and artillery officer and was twice decorated, commanded his battery and reached the rank of captain. In early 1945 he was arrested in an East Prussian village and charged with making derogatory remarks about Stalin. For the next eight years he was in labour camps, at first in general camps along with common criminals in the Arctic and later in various special camps for long-term prisoners. The particular camp described in One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich was in the region of Karaganda in northern Kazakhstan. Released in 1953 on Stalin's death, Solzhenitsyn had to remain in exile for three years, although his wife was allowed to join him before returning to Russia. He settled near Ryazan and taught in a secondary school. In 1961, he submitted his novel, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, to Alexander Tvardovsky, the poet and editor of Novimir, New World, a literary journal. It was published on the final decision of Khrushchev himself in the November 1962 edition of Novimir, which sold out immediately. Three further stories by him were published during 1963 and a fourth in 1966. In 1968, Solzhenitsyn came under attack from the Russian Literary Gazette, which alleged that since 1967, his aim in life had been to oppose the basic principles of Soviet literature and accused him of being content with the role given him by ideological enemies of Russia. He was expelled from the Soviet Writers' Union in 1969 and in 1974, after the publication in Europe of his book, The Gulag Archipelago. And there he kind of runs out. So, because I think it's quite an old version of the book, this. So then we have from Wikipedia, Solzhenitsyn lost his Soviet citizenship and was flown to West Germany. In 1976, he moved with his family to the United States, where he continued to write. In 1990, shortly before the dissolution of the Soviet Union, his citizenship was restored, and four years later he returned to Russia, where he remained until his death in 2008. He was awarded the 1970 Nobel Prize in Literature for the ethical force with which he has pursued the indispensable traditions of Russian literature. And the Gulag Archipelago was a highly influential work that, quote, amounted to a head-on challenge to the Soviet state and sold tens of millions of copies. Thank you very much, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I absolutely loved this book. If I could give it some stars, I'd probably give it five out of five, but I don't need to give it any stars. But I would definitely recommend this book for anyone to read. It's very uplifting and just historically so interesting. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about the next book. March's book by Isabel Allende is The House of Spirits, translated by Magda Bogin. It was published in 1985. And if you're going to read alongside, that'd be fantastic. I'll be reading up to chapter seven, which is called The Brothers. Now, 
I chose this book because I really wanted to read some more South American literature. I really enjoyed Paramo and I thought I would maybe I hadn't read any female authors for a while so I thought it'd be good to do to find some a really good book by a South American female author so that's why I chose this book. I did a bit of research and most people said it was pretty good. So I'm going to read the first page and give you my thoughts. The book opens with a wonderful Pablo Neruda poem, quote, How much does a man live after all? Does he live a thousand days or only one? For a week or for several centuries? How long does a man spend dying? What does it mean to say forever? That really reminds me of For Whom the Bell Tolls, episode 29. Robert Jordan questions whether he can live a life in a day. So chapter one, Rosa the Beautiful. Barabbas came to us by sea, the child Clara wrote in her delicate calligraphy. She was already in the habit of writing down important matters and afterward, when she was mute, she also recorded trivialities, never suspecting that 50 years later, I would use her notebooks to reclaim the past and overcome terrors of my own. Barabbas arrived on a holy Thursday. He was in a despicable cage, caked with his own excrement and urine, and had lost the look of a hapless, utterly defenceless prisoner. But the regal carriage of his head and the size of his frame bespoke the legendary giant he would become. It was a bland autumnal day that gave no hint of the events that the child would record, which took place during the noon mass in the parish of San Sebastian, with her whole family in attendance. As a sign of mourning, the statues of the saints were shrouded in purple robes that the pious ladies of the congregation unpacked and dusted off once a year from a cupboard in the sacristy. Beneath these funereal sheets, the celestial retinue resembled nothing so much as a roomful of furniture awaiting movers, an impression that the candles, the incense and the soft moans of the organ were powerless to counteract. Terrifying dark bundles loomed where the life-sized saints had stood, each with its influenza pale expression, its elaborate wig woven from the hair of someone long dead, its rubies, pearls and emeralds of painted glass and the rich gown of a Florentine aristocrat. What an interesting opening. So Barabbas, I wonder who Barabbas is. And I wonder why the child Clara becomes so important that this person is taking her notes and writing this documentary. And I wonder who this person is. I like the description of the saints dressed up as if they've got influenza. Thank you very much, Isabel Allende. And thanks very much, Solzhenitsyn. And thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. So leave a comment below, or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. And if you want to recommend a future book to read together, do let me know. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a thumbs up and subscribe or give it five stars on your episode app. Thank you. I look forward to discussing the first half of The House of the Spirits by Isabel Allende, translated by Magda Bogan, at the next episode of Bookshook. That's on the second Friday of March, the 10th of March. See you then.